Thank you, O oh Father, that you hear our prayers. Please let us never forget that and take it for granted. Please soften our hearts now as we hear your word read and preached. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Corinth. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went with them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptised. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Archaea, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanour or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Well, hello again. Good to see you. Um, uh, we are starting this term a new series. Uh, as a church together, we're reading through the first part of Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians. Now, we didn't read 1 Corinthians today. That's because we're looking at this passage in Acts chapter 18. Uh, as the start of the church in Corinth. Uh, now, but I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word church. When you hear the word church, uh, maybe you think of a place of healing and grace, a place where God's people spur one another on to holiness and love and good deeds, a place of genuine friendship and community. Um, I, I pray that on some level all of us know something of those things in our church family. But maybe other words might come to your mind as well, or other thoughts that are less positive. 
Um, maybe you're not a regular t- churchgoer and the word that you think of is strange, <laughs> weird. Uh, or maybe it's even a little worse than that, um, hypocritical or toxic. Maybe you're a younger member of our church family and what comes to mind is enduring long sermons. Uh, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while and your experience of church is overshadowed by pains and regrets, by frustrations or hurts. Uh, maybe you've, you have a leadership position at some level. Um, a home group leader or a team leader, and to think of church brings to you kind of feelings of responsibility and perhaps even anxiety. Well, chances are all of us on some level will know some of those things about church, something of the messiness of church, the messiness of church, because that's the nature of church in these last days between Jesus' first and second coming. Uh, That's in this overlap of the ages that we looked at last term, this tension between what God has already achieved in Jesus and what he will achieve on the last day, it's just the, the nature of church is going to be like that. It's going to be messy. So as I said, this, this term, we're looking at this letter of 1 Corinthians, the first few chapters, uh, just the first four chapters. We'll, we'll continue the rest over the next year and uh, into the future. But before we look at the letter itself, we're going to reflect on how this church gets started Uh, this account in Acts 18. And and if ever there was a messy, dysfunctional, broken church, it was this church in Corinth that we're going to be looking at. If ever there was a messy, dysfunctional, broken church, it was the church of Corinth. We're going to see it was a church community that was marked with divisions. Uh, It was marked by immorality, uh, by greed and idolatry. And what's really interesting is that these problems that plagued this church in Corinth that Paul writes his letter to, these problems that plagued the church, were really just a reflection of the issues that were going on in the city itself, in the city of Corinth. Um, So uh, there should be a map if you want to go to that map. Uh, Corinth was this prosperous city. It's on this land bridge. Uh, If you can see it over on the left side of the screen there, it's on this sort of land bridge between um, the, the, the southern and central part of Greece over there. It's a really um, significant... And where, where it was positioned meant it was a really important trade city. Um, the, uh, the, the city itself became quite prosperous. Uh, but it was marked by all the sorts of things you read about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, these people who lived in this city, they loved to align themselves with impressive gurus and leaders Guests, uh, great speakers, they sort of were dividing into factions. Uh, they were a city known for a morally relaxed culture, a kind of anything-goes lifestyle. Uh, in fact, this is interesting. Apparently the phrase to Corinthianize was uh, used back in the ancient world, and it meant, if you said to Corinthianize, it meant uh, to, uh, to lead, it described living a promiscuous lifestyle. So the city was so well known for this, that it even sort of got into the dictionary. Um, it'd be a bit like what might come to your mind when you hear the word Las Vegas or King's Cross in Sydney, something like that. If you go to the next slide, there's um, this picture of the city. And one of the things that you might be able to make out there is, uh, this is what sort of has been dug up and uh, archaeologists have uncovered of, this, uh, of the ancient ruins of this city. Uh, one of the interesting things you might be able to see is there's a whole lot of temples throughout the city. So it's this really religious city. There's um, temples everywhere. It's just part of the culture. 
to worship lots and lots of different gods. So all in all, I reckon if I was the Apostle Paul, uh, this city of Corinth is the sort of city, the sort of place uh, that I'm not sure that I'd want to go to. If I was the Apostle Paul bringing the message of Jesus, a message about a crucified carpenter from this backwater village, a message that there's just one God, not many, a message uh, that that God cares about what we do with our bodies and how we treat one another. Uh, it's the sort of place I reckon if I were Paul, I'd probably just take a pass on, skip over to the next city. <laughs> who, is who on earth is going to listen to this message there? But of course, there is more going on here than meets the eye. Uh, and what we're going to see today is really fundamental for the rest of what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians. Uh, there is a reality that is deeper and surer and stronger than any of the sin or dysfunction that was going on in the city, stronger than any opposition that might come. And you see that actually it's right from the start of the book of Acts. Right from the start. Uh, Acts tells the story of the first Christians uh, after the death and resurrection of Jesus and he ascends to his father and, and what's, uh, you might know the, what the book is known as. Uh, it's known as the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, it's because as you read through, the focus is on the Apostles, this special group of Jesus' disciples who were given authority to teach and make disciples, take the gospel to the nations. But I reckon there's actually probably a better book. The, the, the title of the book isn't inspired, so I think it's all right to say this. Uh, I think there's probably a better title that we could have for the book of Acts. The Apostles are really key, but really, Acts is a book all about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. It's a book all about the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And you, you get that right from the very first verse. So if you go to Acts 1, verse 1, uh, this, this book is written by a guy called Luke. He's not an apostle himself, but he knew and travelled around with them. Uh, he's already written his gospel, Luke's gospel, his account of Jesus' life. And then he starts like this. In the start of Acts, in my former book, that's the Gospel of Luke, Theophilus, the guy he's writing to, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And as you read on in Acts, what you discover is that really Acts is about what Jesus continues to go on to do. What he continues to do by his spirit and through his words in the lives of his people. And this is really important, friends, so important. What is Paul doing as he travels around telling people about Jesus, starting churches? He's not building an empire. Uh, he's not sort of going into places, doing his market research and setting up a whole bunch of business franchises around the Mediterranean. Like That's, that's not what Paul's doing. What, that's not what's going on in Acts. No, actually what's going on is the risen and ascended Lord is gathering his people. Jesus is building his church in the power of his spirit as the life-giving word of his gospel goes out and transforms lives to the glory of God the Father. So this, this is really Jesus' mission. It's his work. And, and knowing that, it totally changes how you go on to read what's in the book of Acts and in this chapter that we're looking at in this city of Corinth. And it's going to be a really foundational thing as we look at, at this, the letter. But it's really important. 
Okay, so you find out from verse, if we go dive into Acts chapter 18 now, skip ahead to Acts 18, you find out from the first verse that Paul comes to Corinth from Athens. There's a, it's another major Greek city. He's on the second, he's, he, he took three big journeys, uh, what's called his missionary journeys, and he's on the second of those, um, taking the message of Jesus, um, planting churches around the Mediterranean, and, and he gets to this impressive city, and he meets a couple who are also new. So verse 2, it should be on the screen there, verse 2. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had already had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, he was the emperor, the Roman emperor, uh, Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned, in the synagogue, that's the kind of uh, the place the Jewish people would gather for worship. Uh, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So he meets these guys, this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are also new to the city. And just think for a little bit about everything that Priscilla and Aquila have gone through up to this point. So they're Jewish people from the city of Rome. The, the kind of big capital of the Roman Empire, uh, they were in there and they've heard the news of Jesus the Messiah and they've become his followers, uh, they've become Christians. But their whole life has been thrown into turmoil. Um, a, a year or two before this, this Roman Emperor Claudius, who we read about, he'd thrown out all the Jewish people out of Rome. Uh, there was some disturbance, possibly to do with um, some friction between Jewish Christians and uh, the Jews who hadn't yet come to Christ. And, and we're not entirely sure, but Claudius kicks out all the Jewish people from Rome. So these, these guys, Priscilla and Aquila, they're homeless. Uh, they're suddenly forced to make a new life for themselves in this unfamiliar city. And I, I can totally imagine them thinking, what is going on, Jesus? I've just, come to, I've just heard this message about you being the Lord of all. Um, uh, this, but my life seems like a complete disaster. This chaotic mess of events sure doesn't look like you're in control. <laughs> oh, it seems like they try to make the best of things, though. They're tent makers by trade, so they set up shop in Corinth and then this wandering Jewish preacher comes to town. And maybe they've already heard of him, uh, this guy called Paul, who was once the strongest opponent of Jesus and his people, but has dramatic, had dramatically come to see in Jesus actually the fulfillment of all the hopes and all the promises of the Jewish scriptures. And, and Paul has the same trade as them and um, more important than that, they soon find out, presumably, that they have the same Lord. So they, they quickly partner up together. And you get this pattern here. What I want to bring out is this pattern that you see here. It's a pattern that is woven into the gospel of Jesus. It's a pattern that you see again and again and again in the Bible. God is using what, humanly speaking, looks like chaos and defeat to accomplish his wonderful purposes. God is using what, humanly speaking, looks like chaos and defeat to accomplish his wonderful purposes. And obviously, the, the ultimate outworking of that is, of course, the cross of Jesus, where what looked like the ultimate shameful defeat actually becomes the greatest victory. Friends, this is going to be really important for us as we read through 1 Corinthians together. 
Another really important pattern that we see here. Um, Priscilla and Aquila have lost everything. It has been a disaster for them. But it hasn't been a disaster for the risen Lord. It hasn't been a disaster for Jesus. He is weaving their story into a much larger and more glorious story. And what looks like disaster ends up with them actually becoming these key gospel partners with the Apostle Paul. Uh, And if you keep reading through Acts, you can read how significant this couple were, Priscilla and Aquila. Um, Paul spends probably a few weeks working with them, uh, going to the synagogue. He starts to engage people with the gospel. He's sort of preparing the ground. He's reasoning with the people there, both Jews and Greeks. But then, as you keep reading on, things ramp up um, when these guys, Silas and Timothy, join him in verse 5. Um, they, you find out in other parts of the New Testament, uh, 2 Corinthians and the book of Philippians, uh, that Silas and Timothy brought with them a, a financial gift from the churches in Macedonia up north. So these two guys come and join Paul. They bring with them um, some money that's been given to Paul and his mission from the churches up north. And this gift means that Paul can now devote himself to gospel proclamation. So he stops making tents, and in verse 5 we read, he gives himself uh, to preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, And and you read this little bit of um, Acts 18, you realise it's not just that Paul's got more time to spend talking to people about Jesus. It's, It's almost as if he sort of ratchets up the heat here too. So before this, uh, if you read out the, the start of the chapter, Paul was reasoning and persuading. Now he's preaching, declaring, proclaiming, and testifying. Um, he's declaring this reality that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the eternal king over God's people. And this word that he is declaring to the people is like these seeds that are being thrown, scattered. His seeds that are being scattered around. Uh, as he often does, he goes, first of all, to the Jewish synagogue. Uh, but before long, they reject him. And in verse 6, we read, they oppose him and they become abusive to him. But what's really interesting is what's happening next. I mean, again, you see this pattern, right? Like I would say, I would take that as a pretty big defeat. But, what, but God is sovereign over what happens here. He's working his purposes out. Um, but... As Paul is speaking to these guys, you get this sense, right? They are still responsible for how they respond to this word. Um, so Paul says to these guys in the synagogue, look, I've, I've told you the truth, I've tried to persuade you, I've shared this good news to you, but how you respond to that is up to you, and you will be held accountable for it. Verse 6, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent of it. Um, So they have a responsibility uh, to respond to this word. Um, But again, this is is not a disaster for Paul. It doesn't doesn't sort of, um, uh, doesn't rock him. He doesn't give up. You notice that he kind of leaves the synagogue and he just redirects his focus. Um, He says, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And what do you read straight away next? In verse 7, he leaves the synagogue. I think this is totally classic. The guy next door. The guy who lives next door says, hey, well, why don't you come over to my place instead and set up here? Uh, teach us about Jesus here. Um, this guy called Titius Justus, 
He was probably a non-Jewish um, God-fearer, uh, someone who recognized that the God of the Jews was the one true God. And, and he's heard Paul speaking about Jesus and his good news for all people of every nation. And that seed is, is starting to do something in his heart. And he sees what's happened to Paul being uh, leaving the synagogue and he invites him into his house. And not just him, as you keep reading verse 8, this guy called Crispus, a leader in the synagogue, his entire household become believers uh, and as Paul sets up in Titus Justice's house, many of the Corinthians believe and are baptized. So again, it's this same pattern. God takes what looks like a really discouraging event and uses it to bring great gospel fruit. The seed of his word is starting to grow. But it doesn't mean it's easy, does it? It doesn't mean the chaos and the discouragement aren't real for Paul, because they are. It is real. And it does seem like, given what happens next, it does seem like Paul, it almost gets too much for him. Uh, but Jesus is building his church. He wants Paul to know that this little seedling is his seedling. And he, Jesus, will protect it and grow it. So he says, he gives this wonderful vision to Paul in verse 9. He comes to Paul in this vision and says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stays in Corinth uh, 18 months, a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. See what's going on there? Jesus reassures Paul, Don't be afraid. Keep going. Keep speaking. Don't fear this opposition or attack. It doesn't say you won't, uh, what does it say? It doesn't say you won't be attacked. It is no one is going to attack and harm you. So you might experience opposition, but you're not going to be harmed uh, because I'm doing something here, Jesus says to Paul. I'm gathering my people, and there are many of them here. And, and this last little bit of the passage you read, do you, do you see how that is put to the test straight away as you keep reading? Uh, this attack does come, uh, this big threat to this new work. Uh, verse 12, the Jews of Corinth um, uh, uh, bring Paul to court. They take him to court before this guy Gallio, who was like the political ruler of the region. And Paul prepares to defend himself, and you can picture him there preparing to give a speech in defense of himself. But before he can open his mouth... The case, maybe it picked us up as we read it. Before he can open his mouth, the case is thrown out by Gallio. And it's not as if Gallio was like a stand-up guy looking out for Paul either. Uh, right at the end of that passage, uh, you read this interesting mention of this synagogue, another synagogue leader called Syn uh, Sosthenes, uh, who gets beaten up in front of Gallio and he just doesn't care about it. So he's obviously not a, not a nice character. Um, and maybe Sosthenes there um, may be the same Sosthenes that you read about in Corinthians, which is really interesting. Uh, he's perhaps become a believer himself. But you're meant to see this same pattern. Jesus is at work. He's promised no attack will harm Paul. And straight away we see the evidence of that. What looks like defeat ends up being used by God uh, to bring about his wonderful and life-giving purposes. Okay. So friends, what do we make of all this, this story of the planning of this church? I think there's a few things. Uh, on one hand, uh, this, it really shows the importance of partnership in gospel ministry. It shows the real importance of partnership. 
Did you pick that up as you read all the way through? We have all these different roles, people contributing uh, in different ways. Priscilla and Aquila welcoming Paul in and um, welcoming him into their business. Uh, Titius, uh, Justice, giving him his house. Uh, Silas and Timothy coming and bringing money from the churches up north. There's this, all the people of God gathering together, partnering together in this great work. So I think there's a real emphasis of partnership here. But what I want to do is just to finish up, to focus on the theological reality that I think we see here that comes out in this passage. And it's what we saw at the start. The planting of this church in Corinth was not ultimately the act of the Apostle Paul or his gospel partners. It was the act of the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus was sovereignly building his church by his spirit, through his word. Um, Paul starts his letter, and we'll see this next week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, we'll look at it next week. He starts his letter addressing this church, and he says, to the church of God in Corinth. It doesn't say to my church in Corinth. He says to the church of God in Corinth. He's reminding of them of this fundamental theological truth the fact that they are God's church, even in all their mess and all their sin and all their brokenness. And it means Paul doesn't give up on them either because God hasn't give up, given up on them. God is at work in them. But there's something really important here also connected to that about how we think about mission about evangelism, about sharing the good news of Jesus. Uh, what you see here, as what we've seen all the way through, God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of Jesus over his great mission, God's sovereignty doesn't compete with our responsibility. They're not in, they don't compete with one another, they go hand in hand. You see that all through here. Uh, Jesus is sovereignly building his church and yet people are responsible for how they respond to his word and Paul is also responsible for how he uh, spreads that word. The gathered church is responsible for how they together partner in this gospel work. So this idea that God is sovereign and that we are also responsible, go hand in hand. I just, if, you're, if you're with us today or listening online and you're not yet a Christian person, you are not going to be able to stand before God on the last day and say, well, you're sovereign, so I'm not responsible. <laughs> you're not going to be able to say that to him. You are responsible for how you respond to his word. And you can respond to his word today. You can come to him and you should come to him in faith today. It may be that this day he is sovereignly using his word to draw you to himself and that as you call out to him, you'll be able to look back and rejoice in the knowledge that he is the one who has first called you into as, as one of his own people. But for those of us who are Christians, who have come into a living relationship with Jesus, put our trust in him, when we think about our efforts to bring the gospel to the world around us, to the Flurio Peninsula, uh, as, as we seek to foster a new gospel work out at Gulwa as a church, uh, as we look to our own neighbours and our friends and family here, uh, 
When it comes to mission, the sovereignty of God actually is, I want to suggest, the one thing that will energize and sustain our efforts to proclaim Jesus. Knowing that God is sovereign over this is the one thing that is actually going to give you energy and perseverance to continue to proclaim Jesus in your life. Uh, we, don't, we don't have the same assurance that was given to Paul. He was given this particular assurance that he's not going to be harmed. Um, that's not a general kind of promise. But we do have the same commission to go into all the world with this wonderful news about Jesus. And, friends, we can be assured of the same reality. Jesus is building his church and whatever opposition or harm might come to us, whatever sacrifices we make, they won't be bigger than him and the beautiful story that he is writing. In the end, they will actually be used in his sovereign and good purposes. There's a really rich, uh, wonderful little book by a writer called J.I. Packer. Maybe you've heard of J.I. Packer. He wrote this little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, if you want to look it up and get it, I would recommend it. He talks about this passage, and I want to finish with a quote of his. He talks about this passage in Acts chapter 18. And he writes this. Let's reflect on these words to finish up. The sovereignty of God in grace gave Paul hope of success as he preached to deaf ears and held up Christ before blind eyes and sought to move stony hearts his confidence was that where Christ sends the gospel, there Christ has his people. Fast bound at present in the chains of sin, but due for release at the appointed moment through our mighty renewing of their hearts as the light of the gospel shines into their darkness and the Saviour draws them to himself. Paul's confidence should be our confidence too. We may not trust in our methods of personal dealing or running evangelistic services, however excellent we may think them. There is no magic in methods. When we evangelise, our trust must be in God who raises the dead. He is the almighty Lord who turns men's hearts and women's hearts and boys' and girls' hearts, who turns people's hearts, and he will give conversions in his own time. Meanwhile, our part is to be faithful in making the gospel known, sure that such labour will never be in vain. Let me pray for us. Oh, our Father, we pray that in the light of your sovereign grace, your great mission that you are, take, you, you are undergoing in this world by your spirit, through your word, please help us to see where we might partner together in gospel ministry. Give us this kind of confidence and perseverance. Help us, Father, to give ourselves to your work, knowing that in the Lord, in you, our labour is not in vain. Please, we pray, our, our Lord, we ask that you might bring good fruit out of this church.
that many, many of the thousands in Victor Harbour, across the Goolwar and across the Fleurieu region, the many thousands who are outside of Christ and who rightly face your judgment, that many of them would hear this wonderful news through us, through the testimony of our lives and our words, and that they might come to put their faith in Jesus by the renewing of your spirit. Please, our Father, we pray that you might work powerfully in and through us, and we pray this for your glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen.